This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campus joins with us down in the Fox Valley, as well as those, all those who watch us online. Let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us this morning. Remind you uh, how we do our offerings here at Celebration Church. Uh, on the way out of the service this morning at the doors, there'll be ushers with buckets, and you can put in your checks or cash at that time. You can use the envelopes in uh, uh, front of you on the back of the seats uh, to give as well. And don't forget that today, oh, also you can give online. A lot of people do that. Or you can use your phone. Use the Celebration Church app. Uh, and don't forget the uh, Mission Sunday. This is always when we ask people to give above and beyond. So if every week you usually give X, give X plus this week. Throw something special and mark it for missions. Uh, actually, it's a great way to use your phone. Even if you don't normally use your phone to give, you can just pull up the app right now and say, and put in for missions X amount of dollars. And, uh, and it'll allow us to continue to do the things that you just saw uh, on the screen. Uh, this last year has been the most impact we've been able to ever have. And thank God for that and for your faithfulness. Everybody said amen. amen. All right. Oh, and don't forget, guys, about man camp coming up. You know you're a manly man when you go to man camp. First weekend in February. <laughs> and uh, we just all have to hang out. It's a blast. So sign up for that. Um, according to the Christian calendar, as you know, we are now in the season of Epiphany. Today is the second Sunday of Epiphany. What is an Epiphany? An Epiphany is a moment of sudden revelation or insight. When all of a sudden, oh yeah, now I get it. That sort of thing. I love this time of year and I love that emphasis because ultimately it's the Holy Spirit that has to make truth real to us. We can teach it and preach it and drill it and stuff, but until God turns the lights on. Uh, and I pray God turns the lights on for all of us who are listening and part of this church. Uh, today's message I've entitled, What is Your Name? And it is my prayer today that you will begin to experience an epiphany of how God views you. 
We're going to read from Isaiah, the prophet, 62nd chapter, verses 1 through 5, give you context here. Um, the uh, children of Israel, well, nutshell of history here, you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were called Hebrews. God changes his name, uh, Jacob's name, to Israel. They now become the Israelites. They all wind up in Egypt. They, tur they turn them into slaves for 400 years. You know the story, right? Moses comes, let my people go. They all come out uh, and they go. Uh, King David eventually comes and he unites all of Israel, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, into one big, powerful nation. Well, eventually, after his death and I believe Solomon's death, there's a civil war and they split up and you wind up with the northern uh, tribes, which are the 10, which are made up of 10 tribes. And then the southern tribe uh, made up of uh, mostly just Judah and, and uh, you know, what's the other one? Anybody know? Benjamin. Yeah, thank you. Benjamin. That's good. She's right. Uh, Benjamin, those two are the tribes of the south. So you got the north and the south. Ten to two. So anyway, as you read the history of the Jews, uh, they start getting in all kinds of trouble. They just, they're disobeying God. God has, is warning them for hundreds of years. They get really, really, really bad. I mean, corrupt to a degree. It would be disgusting to talk about what they got into. It was just horrible. They were like the pagan nations around them. God kept warning them, sending them prophets to warn them. They just kept just ignoring God. And God warned him he's going to bring judgment. And eventually he does. First to the northern tribes. Uh, and the armies come in and decimate them. They are scattered to the four winds. To this day, people don't know where they are. Those are referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. Eventually, they will be discovered, but not yet. Uh, and uh, it's fascinating. So they get scattered. Then you basically have the southern nation, which is still intact, and they're called Judah. So as you read through the Bible, all of a sudden, you'll see them talking about Israel and Judah. That's the difference, the northern and the southern tribes. Well, Judah falls into the same problem. They keep disobeying God. It was 150 years or so later that finally the hammer comes down on them. The Babylonians come in. They wipe out, destroy the city of Jerusalem, tear down Solomon's temple, this gorgeous temple. All this it is razed to the ground. Most of the people are killed. And then the remnant is taken into captivity into Babylon. So the Babylonians took them and brought them back into Babylon, and, uh, which was their custom. They were trying to conquer the world. And the way they would do it is they would bring people from every culture back to Babylon and turn them into Babylonians. And this is where you read about Daniel in the lion's den and the Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was not their names. They had Jewish names, but now those are their Babylonian names. Why? Because they're trying to turn them into Babylonians. Anyway, all this occurs. Uh, they are heartbroken. There's seven years or so. They are into captivity. Isaiah prophesies that this is all going to turn around and God is going to bring them back, which he does miraculously. It's an amazing account uh, we might get into someday. And they rebuild Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. This is the temple that Jesus came into when he came to the world 500 years later. So anyway, at this point, they're in captivity. And Isaiah starts prophesying to them. Let's read what he says here. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. 
till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. So again, at this point, it looks hopeless. It's not like things are bad back in Jerusalem. There is no Jerusalem. Everything has been raised, destroyed. There's nothing left. And God starts speaking of the promise of them returning and rebuilding all of this. He says, you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or your, name your land desolate. And then he starts speaking in romantic terms. Interesting in the uh, Jewish language here. He says, but you will be called Hevzibah, which is what a guy would call his girlfriend or someone, a girl he loves, which means my delight is in her. And your land will be called Beulah, which means married. So the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now, these are all prophecies. It doesn't seem like there's a chance that any of this will happen. But God is speaking to them, and the prophet's prophesying. All this is going to get turned around. And he starts changing. Your name is going to be different. Now they're called desolate. They got all these names and stuff that, that uh, were, were negative. And he gives them a new name of hope and positivity. Now, the reason I want to talk about this is if we're not careful, we can allow the failures of our lives to name us. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Nothing like coughing into a loud microphone. <coughs> anyway, um, so and, and we allow our failures to kind of imprint themselves on us. We think of ourselves in terms of our failures. This is very common for people. And people talk about their lives. Well, what, what are you about? Well, I'm divorced. I'm a single mom. I'm an adulterer. I'm a loser. I'm a thief. I'm an ex-con. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm a fill in the blank. And people are very quick to uh, toss these names and they view themselves in these terms uh, of their failures. A lot of people do this, by the way. In fact, I dare say a lot of you listening to me right now fall into this category of viewing yourself from, from your failures. And, and I, I can go off script here just for a minute. Imagine I would do that. Uh, uh, let me talk to you single women. And I'm not talking the young ones. I'm talking the older ones. Okay. A lot of you talk about yourselves in these terms and in the terms of your failure, which I get. A lot of people do this, but the problem is a lot of you do it the minute you meet somebody. And a lot of women will tell me, you know, Pastor, I just keep attracting bad men. I just keep, you know why? You got big mouth and you keep speaking negative. I have met people in that foyer who in the first 45 seconds of talking to them, yeah, I'm, I'm divorced, I'm an ex-con, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, and they just vomit all this stuff out. The minute you talk about yourself in that way, that is blood in the water to bad men. Because they look for weak women or weak women who communicate, I need or I'm lonely. Or, Don't do that. When you meet some guy, 
You don't owe them an exclamation about anything. Somebody say amen. amen. Just shut up. Well, he, he, he wants to know about me. Yeah, don't tell him Jack. It doesn't need his business. He starts asking you questions about you. You just turn around to him. Now he tell me about you. All right? Now, eventually, if he sticks around, you're going to have to cough it up. Or if you got a, out of prison as an axe murderer and you're out on a technicality, he should know that. <laughs> if, if for his own sake and, and learn not to get you angry, okay? <clears throat> but don't lead with this. And I'm, I'm telling you, I hear it all the time and a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't take three minutes and you're coughing up every intimate, horrible, si stop it. Don't tell him Jack. What you want to tell them, communicate, is you are a strong, healthy woman who doesn't need anything. Amen. That's what attracts good men. Because bad men, when they see that, they turn and look elsewhere for someone else who is weak and can be taken advantage of. That's good preaching, Pastor Mark. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> That's off script. That was free. All right. But we get this problem. We view ourselves in the negative. Now, one of the classic American novels in America was written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It was published back in 1850, when I was about 18. And uh, it's called The Scarlet Letter. A lot of us had to read this in high school, or at least we read the Cliff Notes because we didn't actually want to read the book. <laughs> Some of us may have done that. But anyway, the book is a, a story about this Puritan uh, colony in Massachusetts of this lady who uh, uh, gives birth to this woman. You know, she's, it's all illeg illegitimate. And they take her and they publicly shame her and humiliate her. And they make her wear the scarlet letter A over her chest for the rest of her life. So everybody would know that she's an adulteress. Uh, it's horrible. It's a horrible story, actually. Uh, interesting. But it's very revealing about how Christians oftentimes struggle with other Christians who make mistakes. You know, uh, there's this scene where she, she's up in the, on the scaffold and they're all rebuking her and stuff. I don't think these are devout Christian men and women who read the Bible where Jesus was encounter this woman who was caught in adultery. And what does Jesus say? I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Whoever has no sin, let them cast the first stone. I mean, how ignorant can these people be? But yet, if you look back historically, Christians tend to be very, very harsh to Christians who sin. Does that make any sense? It's like we don't have a problem with somebody who doesn't know Jesus and then comes and repents and asks Christ in their life. That is celebrated, as it should be. But there's this weird thing that gets in our heads, and I think it's because this attitude, well, we should know better, right? And heaven forbid if it's a Christian leader or a pastor who messes up and people just start foaming at the mouth, and they can't handle it, and they just get mean as they can be. Don't let yourself do that, okay? The door of grace does not slam shut once you become a Christian. That makes no sense. It's almost like, yeah, if you're just a rotten, wicked heathen, there's grace for you. As soon as you find Jesus, now if you mess up, you should be punished. 
Nonsense. That's not the way this works. Okay? Um, you know, there's a scripture you know, where Jesus said, the angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner that comes to find grace. And that's true. And we, uh, we celebrate that. Here's a popular verse we've all read many times. Uh, it's in Matthew, the 18th chapter, or we sing in our songs. He says, what do you think? Jesus says, a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away. Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? If he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. This is Jesus talking about a lost soul. A lot of times people think, well, you're talking about someone who doesn't know Christ yet. No, the context is this sheep is part of the fold, okay? He wanders off, like sometimes we wander off. And he says he leaves the 99, goes and gets the one to bring them back. We should be celebrating and showing mercy and grace, even to people of faith, even to those who should know better. John writes these words. He says, if we, and he's writing to Christians, if we allow, uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is what happens to believers. A lot of times we get a scarlet letter and we mark it on ourselves and we go, and maybe obviously not literally, but we think in these terms. And even if you don't say it, you feel it. You feel, you know, what used to be great joy starts to be heaviness. You know, I, you know, I'm not a very good person. I, I should be better. I, you know, I'm a failed Christian. You know, I've done things I shouldn't have done. All this stuff. And we let these failures start to imprint themselves on us. But this is not how God deals with us. I want to look at some verses here so you can start to see how God views you and how he calls us. John, the first chapter, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive them, him, talking about Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So when you come to faith, God calls you a child of God. Ephesians 1.7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We have redemption. So, so God views you as you are redeemed. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, Jesus said. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask my Father in, uh, in my name, the Father will give you. So you didn't choose me. I chose you. You have been chosen. Uh, Jeremiah 1, 5. I love this one. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I anointed you as a prophet among nations. We've been set apart. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I love that. you Because these words go by so fast, they don't stick with us. You... Uh, our chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's how God views you. No, not me, pastor. Everybody else, I have issues and I'm struggling and I've made mistakes. No, no. 
he views you in this way. You are his special possession. John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I've made known to you. God calls you his friend. Ephesians 2, 10, we're jumping all over the Bible here. Uh, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are God's handiwork. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are what? A citizen of heaven. Romans 8.37, in all these things, we are uh, more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're more than a conqueror. The uh, picture here is really rather amazing. You know what a conqueror is? A conqueror comes and he conquers. That's why he's called a conqueror. Nobody can beat this guy. He comes in. You're talking about the Roman conquerors of the day. Historically, these great conquerors that would come through the world and they were called conquerors. That's a pretty important position. You are the top dog when you're a conqueror. It would be great if God called us conquerors. He doesn't. He says, you are more than conquerors. Now, I don't know how you get to be more than a conqueror. <laughs> Because conquer is pretty impressive. But it's over the top. This is over the top language. You are more than a conqueror. You say, Pastor, I don't feel like it. I know, but you are. Thank you for that overwhelming amen. <laughs> I can't hear myself speak. Yes, those three people clapping. God bless you all. <clears throat> Psalm 139, 14. I praise you. Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full world. Well, you are wonderful. St. Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are a new creation. Yeah, well, that's the thing, Pastor. I came to Jesus. I'm a new creation, but I've made mistakes. Again, grace is not a one-time deal. It's always there. That's what we celebrate when we take communion together, right? We come to the table of grace. This is where we can always do a reset. You can always come to God and set things straight. Here's what the Bible thinks of you. This is what God thinks of you. You're a child of God. You're redeemed. You are chosen. You are set apart, meaning special. You are God's special possession. You are God's friend. You are God's handiwork a citizen of heaven, more than a conqueror, wonderful. You are a new creation. That's what God sees when he sees you. And all I can do is pray you have an epiphany about that this morning. You're a different person. You're a new, and not just a rotten, filthy sinner that's still a rotten, filthy sinner, but God has to forgive you because that's the rule. All right? You're really something special. I don't know, most people don't get this. I know. They don't get it. They, because they struggle and they think, gee, here's where I should be. Here's where I am. God must be ticked off at me all the time. You know, you know, you go to some churches and you walk in and it's super quiet. God's ticked off. Don't make him mad. You know, the only time we'd get really quiet in the house when dad was ticked. 
we didn't want him to know we were there. It's almost like that when you go to some of these real traditional churches. Ooh, we come here, we're loud, we sing. Why do you do that? Because we're part of God's kingdom. We're children of God. We have something to celebrate. God is not just always an angry God who's ticked off at you. I love these phrases. A child of God, redeemed, chosen, set up. You're a citizen of heaven. This is, this is why God listens to when you pray. You say, well, I don't feel that. Well, that's why you don't have any faith and you don't get any prayers answered. Because <laughs> you have to have faith. Why would, God, why would God listen to me? Because you're a citizen of heaven. It's a big deal when you're... A, I'll tell you what, if you ever travel in other countries, it's kind of a cool thing to be able to carry an American passport. You're an American citizen. It's a whole other ballgame. You know, people from other countries know exactly. You're treated a little more differently. Now, some people hate you because of it, but generally you have rights and you, you know, we're part of the United States of America. It's a, it's a big deal. We, uh, we are citizens of heaven. We don't have a passport, <laughs> but we are citizens of heaven, okay? More than conquerors, wonderful, a new creation. We succeed in life when we no longer allow our failures to define us. Rather, we allow God to define us. You know, and I've used this analogy many times, but I really enjoy these movies, you know, who someone is... Uh, just kind of a loser and has no future and no hope. And then uh, things start to change for them. They discover that they are royalty or they have got millions of dollars somewhere. And it slowly starts to change them. Now, what's funny is how they start to transform. It's usually very entertaining, depending. This theme is done many times in movies. Or I love these movies about, you know, some woman, she just looked horrible, just dreadful or just super plain. And then suddenly she's slowly transformed. And by the end of the movie, it's like, Hochi Mama, look at her. It's like, you know, how do they pull this off? You know, um, it's, and it's fun to, I always get a kick out of that. Because I always think that's kind of what God is doing to us. You know, it was a movie like this. You know, The Devil Wars Prada. You all see this, right? What's the girl's name? I can't remember what her name is. Anne Hathaway, that's the actress, yeah. I forget who the character is. Anyway, she's just kind of this frumpy girl wearing frumpy clothes and just frumpy. <laughs> and she gets into this world of high, high uh, fashion. And it's hilarious to watch how this transformation occurs. By the, by the end, she's like, <coughs> holy cow, quite the transformation. I look at that and I go, this is us. This is what happens. We come to Jesus. We are very frumpy. Somebody say Amen. <laughs> I'm not talking physically, but just emotionally and psychologically. And we're frumpy. And just when you think you're getting together, then something horrible happens or you do something stupid or you say something you shouldn't have said or whatever. The list is so long. And then we just stay in front mode. When in reality, God is trying to turn you into a gorgeous fashionista. <laughs> to keep the analogy going. <laughs> That's why I'm so pretty. Anyway. This, this is what happens. He starts to change us. On the inside, we become stronger. We become healthier. We become better. Especially when the Holy Spirit comes and starts making this truth real to you. When you start to understand who you are, it changes everything. 
And I've told this story as well many times. When I grew up, my mother uh, so instance, instilled a value in us that was really outside reality, but it was very helpful. She always told us, you're a gunger. You can do anything. And we actually believe this. I was at least 35 before it dawned on me. That doesn't really mean anything. But all my life, every time I would stumble and fall and fail and come to the end of the road and hit a brick wall, it's like I had the voice of my mother haunting me. You can do anything. You're a gunger. Sadly, a lot of you have opposite voices in your head. Your failure, your disappointment, and that sticks in your head. And when you fail, it's just a confirmation of the bad names people have called you all your life. If that's you this morning, I pray to heaven, you will have an epiphany this morning. Forget the names others have put on you or you've put on yourself and start to realize who you are, how God views you and the names he calls you. It will change you. It will change your uh, countenance. Your future will look brighter. Well, nothing's changed. Well, when Isaiah was speaking these words to these guys, nothing changed. They woke up, everything was miserable. The next morning, they still woke up and everything was miserable. But what happens? Now they start to see things differently. They start to be filled with faith. And when you get filled with faith, nothing is impossible, Jesus said, to him who believes. And they went back and they rebuilt this incredible nation that would have been torn down to nothing. And it all started with understanding the name God called them versus what everybody else and even themselves had called themselves. Amen. We're going to uh, go to our time of communion this morning, invite our ushers to come forward and get ready to serve all of us. This is when we turn our attention to what all of this is about. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. His body was broken so we could be made whole. His blood was shed so we could experience the forgiveness of sins. And the Bible says whenever we do this, we should stop and reflect. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, we read, Whoever eats, uh, I'm sorry, talking about communion, he says, we should examine ourselves and then, and then only eat the bread and drink of the cup. So it starts with examining ourselves, setting things right. So let's bow our heads as I pray a prayer of forgiveness over all of us. And again, uh, wherever you're at, whatever you've done, whatever you're struggling with, he said, Pastor, I keep doing the same stupid thing over and over and over again. Yeah, well, guess what? There's always a new start. The door of grace is always open if you'll come and just partake of it. So with those words in mind, let's pray. Heavenly Father, before we partake of the bread and the cup this morning and in obedience to the scriptures, we pause to examine ourselves. If we have sinned against you in thought, word, or deed by what we've done, by what we've left undone, if we haven't loved you with our whole heart, if we've not loved our neighbors as ourselves for the sake of your beloved son, Jesus, who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, we pray have mercy on us and forgive us of all our sins. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of your Holy Spirit, keep us an eternal life that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And as we're praying and people are reflecting right now, maybe you're sitting here and you think, you know, I've never experienced any of this stuff you're talking about. Uh, maybe you're watching online and say, I don't even know how I found you people. I don't know how this popped up on my Facebook page. I, whatever but you've been listening to this and thinking, you know, I've never been where you guys are. I've never experienced Jesus Christ. You can do that right now. Just in your own words, ask Jesus to come into your life. 
Ask him to forgive you of your sins and you can have a new start today. Well, pastor, you don't know the failures. You don't know what I've done. You don't, it doesn't matter. His grace is greater than any sin, any failure in your life. And then start to experience his grace and start to see yourself as he sees you. It will change your life. Amen.